Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to help support Songcraft while accessing bonus content and rewards, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You can also keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com, where you can check out our episode archive and sign up for our email list. Your life is a record People and places are You're listening to I'll Be the Sad Song, the lead track on Brandy Clark's most recent album, Your Life is a Record. Five years since our last conversation with her, the six-time Grammy nominee makes an unprecedented second appearance on Songcraft to give us an update on what's been going on with her own career and share additional insights on some of her hits for other artists, including the band Perry's Better Dig 2, Miranda Lambert's Mama's Broken Heart, and Casey Musgrave's Follow Your Arrow and Biscuits. Part 1. My wife and I have been binge-watching this show, Cobra Kai, uh, on Netflix. I don't know. Have, have you seen it? <laughs> I actually started last night. I watched the first three episodes. I don't know how you feel about it, but I think it's pretty awesome. And it may be because I saw The Karate Kid eight times in the theater when I was a kid and then watched it on VHS untold number of times. So I feel like I am the target audience. Were your parents the Beverly Hillbillies? It's just like, we're going to go to the movies <laughs> however many times you want. Like we have all the money in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it might have been like summer, and right. it's hot and humid in uh, Nashville, and we couldn't afford a tricket to Opryland, <laughs> which for those of you that don't know is three days in a row at Opryland, which I know your family just dropped you off at Opryland for the entire summer. Oh, my! I was dropped off at Opryland uh, completely unattended from a very young age. Yeah, that's the most baller thing ever. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's like an adult going to the Hamptons. Um, <laughs> It'll be fine. <laughs> for me, I went to eight movies, which was uh, in 1984, I think about $3 a pop. So I think my parents <laughs> blew through about 25 bucks sending me to see Karate Kid that many times. But um, I will I will say this about Karate Kid. Um, and I probably shouldn't admit that I was this old and still like hadn't quite mastered the bike with no training wheels. Oof. But yeah. I, my dad, I think, had finally just taken the training wheels off the bike because he's like, I can't <laughs> I can't have my son be seen going through the neighborhood like this. Right. So he was very patiently working with me in the backyard, like running around the backyard, holding the bike seat, trying to get me to figure out the balance. And like for whatever reason, I was just I wasn't getting it. I was really, you know, nervous I was going to fall. And so we went to see Karate Kid in the theater and uh we got, we parked in the garage, we got out of the car and I remember we were kind of walking back, you know, from the garage to the house and I saw the bike leaning against the picnic table in the backyard and I was like, you know what, man, I'm going to freaking ride that thing. And I uh -huh. just, I got on it and just started riding in circles around the backyard. Suddenly I could ride a bike without training wheels. That was your crane kick. Yeah. That was my, I just, was. I needed the inspiration. Well, uh, hopefully uh, Cobra Kai will have the same effect on me in some kind of way. Um, <laughs> I'll complete a push-up. I don't know. But um, one of the things that I love about it uh, is how 
referential it is to the 80s in so many ways. And I don't want to give anything away to anyone, but, uh, you know, the music alone, uh, when you yeah. just, from scene to scene, it's like, oh my gosh, it's it's Twisted Sister, it's Ario Speedwagon, you know, I mean, it's just at, at every turn. Yeah, there was, uh, in, in the first episode that I saw last night, there was a, a nice uh, driving montage with a little uh, Nothing But A Good Time by Poison. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's, it's only a matter of time before we get, you know, uh, Survivor, um, hopefully Journey. But what I'm noticing is that some of these, and it takes a keen ear, but that these are not the original recordings. Hmm, I'm really? not saying all of them. Right. Uh, the poison poison ones sounded pretty on, but like Twisted Sister, I was like, okay, and, and I know this because my my kids are really into Twisted Sister right now. It's a long story. <laughs> Aren't your kids but, really small? <laughs> yeah, um, it's a different vocal, and and you you can tell just little inflections here and there, uh, a little bit of tonality. You can even tell that the reverb's a little bit different, uh, you know. But it's what and and you know this with your licensing background, but I don't know if everybody knows this, but Bands out there, especially classic bands, have been going in and re-recording their hits um, because once you're kind of out of the record deal and, and you've moved on to this part of your life, if you present a recording that sounds good enough and sounds like the original, people will use your version for the commercial, for the TV show, not the label's version from 1982 or whatever, right. but this version that you've re-recorded and then you, the artist, collect all that money, right, all that right. licensing money. Um, and it's, it's quite the undertaking because you have to get the guitar tones just right. Yeah. The drums have to sound exactly on point and, and everything has to be re-recorded. You, you can't go use the material that was paid for by Atlantic Records back in the day and you got to go and still be able to hit the notes. Right. But I hear it, you know, like you go to a hotel or a, a restaurant or, you know, something like that or watching movies and TV and I hear them like 50% of the time now, I think I'm hearing re-records. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you think about the economics of being an artist and, or being a songwriter that, you know, you used to be able to make plenty of money on, you know, film placements, TV placements, um, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. Now, I mean, you know, record sales were obviously a huge uh, flow of income at one time that is has gone away. You know, now there's so much content, there's so many yeah. movies and TV, so much stuff being created that they're just, it has to affect the economy of that world so that productions probably are not paying. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing here, but they're probably not paying what they once did. So it's kind of a no brainer for these artists that can pull it off to say, hey, look, uh, if they're going to license the song and you're going to get paid for the song that you wrote, might as well also get paid for owning the master recording the master. of that song instead of Sony yep. or Universal or whoever. Yeah, and I the the first band that I heard about doing this was Kiss. Um, hmm. Not surprisingly, um, <laughs> Kiss Kiss has never missed out on an opportunity to make a dollar. I thought they were um, all about the art, and commerce was yeah. like kind of gross to them. Yeah, they are the Banksy of rock. Um, <laughs> but, uh, back when they were doing the the Dr Pepper ad, and they used Dr Love, and I remember a buddy of mine told me he said, "Yeah, that's a re-record." And I went and I I listened closely next time the commercial was on. I was like, "Oh my gosh, it is." Um, and we just watched again with the kids the other day this recent <laughs> movie. Uh, Scooby Doo and Kiss are together solving a mystery. I think it's just <laughs> called Scooby Doo Meets Kiss or something like that. Of course. But all the songs, they're all re records. I think they may have just made the movie so they could do that. Um, <laughs> so, so your kids, if they hear the Kiss records, are going to be like, mm, something sounds off. Yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's it's uh, the, these poor kids. They're not going to have any way to relate to the the kids in their class when they actually do return to the classroom. <laughs> they're going to be like, "Hey, did you guys listen to a lot of Twisted Sister this summer?" <laughs> and then they're just going to get ostracized. Yeah, and yeah. The, the other, therapy bills are going to be all, all the other six year olds were listening to WAP. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> so I think you're yeah. better off. Yeah, alternating that and Baby Shark. Um, <laughs> but. Anyway, to, to come full circle, um, it, uh, Cobra Kai is really fun. I'm enjoying watching it. It's it's like really cool to have a sequel to a classic um, and, and not just like Karate Kid 2, Karate Kid 3. Those were sequels. But this really feels like it, it carries on the spirit, um, you know, of the original. And you've actually set me up, Paul, for another one of my famous transitions here. Uh, right. <laughs> because in a way... Today is the first episode of Songcraft that has ever uh, been a sequel. You're right. Um, we have never in the history of this show had a guest on uh, more than once. And, you know, we talk to a lot of um, writers uh, who have had these incredibly long and, and storied careers. And a lot of times, a lot of the guests that we've had are already kind of retired honestly and and yeah. so they've they've told us their story and they've told us you know um about the the stories behind their songs and um brandy clark i think was episode number two of yeah. of songcraft which has been five years ago now um and somebody uh publicist reached out recently and was like hey would you like to have uh brandy on songcraft and i wrote back i was like oh thanks we actually already have and then I'm like, wait a minute, Brandy is like totally like still very much in the middle of her career. And a lot has happened in the last has five done years. Quite a bit. Yeah. since We first talked to her. Yeah. So uh, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Let's catch up with Brandy. So this was a cool opportunity to kind of do something we hadn't gotten to do before, which is to check in with yeah. uh, a guest that we've had in the past. And um, I would say that both episodes work together as companion pieces. You do not have to go back and listen to the first one in order for this one to make sense. <laughs> right. We actually talk about some of the same songs and stuff, but we do approach everything from a different angle. So there's no duplicate uh, material here. But if you want to listen to this one first and then go back and listen to the other one, you don't have to listen to them in order. But uh, but taken together, I think um, it, it's really fun just to sort of hear that five year difference and what yeah. she's been up to and how she has continued to evolve uh, as an artist. And she's got this uh, album that came out earlier this year. That is uh, really great. I think it's fantastic. I'm a huge fan of Brandy's. Um, I knew her uh, personally back in the day before she sort of earned all this recognition as a writer and artist. Um, I think a lot of her as a, as a person, she's, she's just a great individual but also insanely talented so yeah. uh, very cool to get to do something uh, a little different for us and and revisit the past this is kind of our empire strikes back when it comes to to brandy this is the pinnacle what movie has gone the furthest the most number of sequels while still maintaining quality oh man i mean obviously police academy that <laughs> i think that's that's what you'd have to say right that or halloween yeah that that may be another topic for another time, but um, yeah, maybe anyway. we should just start a whole other podcast about movie sequels. Let, um, totally, Let, we should start a podcast about something that we know nothing about. <laughs> I will say this: if we're going to talk about inspiration and talk about Karate Kid in that era, uh, was there any movie on the face of the earth cooler at the time that it came out 
than Rocky Three. You've got Mr. T, Hulk yeah. Hogan, Rocky Balboa in the same movie. My head almost exploded. That's true, huh? And then you had the the robot, the birthday robot for oh, Paulie. Yeah. <laughs> and then you had like America versus Russia, which was like, you know, just perfect for the time. Right, right. Well, that was the next one. That was Rocky IV. Uh, I'm embarrassed by that. I shouldn't have made yeah. that mistake. You, uh, you, but, but I did. And you know what? I, we're going to leave it in here. All right. We're going to leave it in here. We're going to let the people see who you really are. It makes me sound really dumb, <laughs> but we're going to leave it in there. <laughs> what we do have, though, is Apollo and Rocky running in slow motion in the ocean in tube socks. What? With their then, socks just pulled up to their navels. And then just hugging and dancing <laughs> like it's Oktoberfest. <laughs> well, yeah, I know what three is. I might have messed up with the Russia thing. In fact, the robot's in four, two. Yeah. I messed up with the robot. The robot's in four, two. Yeah. And then there's That's that real reckoning where he's got to go out in his fancy car and really reflect on like, man, who have I become? That's four. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, the point being <laughs> that uh, Brandy Clark Part 2 is basically the Empire Strikes Back of Songcraft, and I'm proud of this uh, interview. So, And Rocky Three and Rocky Four are the rubber soul and revolver of, <laughs> of the, the Rocky, Rocky trilogy. <laughs> yeah. I'll agree with that. I'll so go that, with that. that. That's how they get a little, a little messed up. That's <laughs> how I got them confused. All right, well, before we completely fall off the cliff, uh, yeah. let's uh, go to our interview with Brandy. Let's do it. Part 2. Brandy Clark has made a successful career writing songs for other artists, including the band Perry's number one hit, Better Dig 2, and Miranda Lambert's Mama's Broken Heart, which earned a Grammy nomination for Best Country Song, as well as both CMA and ACM nominations for Song of the Year. Other songs in her catalog include Follow Your Arrow, which won CMA Song of the Year after co-writer Casey Musgraves made it a modern-day classic, as well as titles that have been recorded by artists such as Reba McIntyre, George Strait, Jennifer Nettles, Darius Rucker, Keith Urban, Leanne Rimes, Lindsay L., Toby Keith, and Sheryl Crow. As a critically acclaimed singer-songwriter, Brandy's debut album, 12 Stories, earned her Grammy nominations in the categories of Best Country Album and Best New Artist, regardless of genre, and the single, Hold My Hand, was nominated for Best Country Song. Her second album, the Grammy-nominated Big Day in a Small Town, was named one of the best albums of the year by Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, and American Songwriter, while the single, Love Can Go to Hell, earned Brandy yet another nomination for Best Country Solo Performance. Her most recent album, Your Life is a Record, was released earlier this year with the New Yorker Review noting that no one is writing better country songs than Brandy Clark is. If your life is a record Brandy, welcome back to Songcraft. Thanks for having me back. I'm uh, happy to be here again. Episode number two was Brandy Clark, and we aired that in 2015. It was recorded at the end of 2014, so we're actually making history today. Uh, we've never had a guest back for a second time, but we are thrilled uh, to have you with us for um, part two. And I do want to encourage folks uh, to go listen to our original interview with you at some point to get more on your background and in terms of your influences, where you grew up and, and all that good stuff. Um, because this time we're just going to jump right in with your career as a songwriter. Um, I listen to you guys' podcast. I love it, actually. Oh, oh yeah? Thank you. Nice. 
I mean, what do you mean actually? Did you not expect to? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, no, 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 I shouldn't say actually. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I mean, some I'll listen to, you know, once and be like, eh, I really can't get into that. Right. But, but y'all's, I really like it. I loved the one with uh, Steve Dorff. Oh, oh, yeah. That was fun. Oh, I'm glad to be on again. You released an album earlier this year called Your Life is a Record. Um, and it's a really cool sounding album sonically um there's a a lot of strings and and even some horns um yet the album is still like acoustic but it doesn't sound like i think what people would imagine when you say it's an acoustic record um talk about how you approached making that album uh especially in comparison to your previous two records well, it's, it's so um, great that you, it, it makes me feel good that you would say, oh, it's acoustic, but it's also got this string and horn component because it started as an acoustic project. I I made my last record, Big Day in a Small Town with Jay Joyce, and was, was wanting to work with him again, but didn't want to make the same record, nor did he. That's one of the great things about him is he, he sets out to make every project different. And I had thought from the first time I met Jay, I guess it would have been... 2015 maybe I think we made Big Day in a Small Town 2015 came out in 2016 yeah so it would have been 2015 um I I always thought it would be cool with a guy like him who's known for a more electric heavy sound to challenge him to cut all acoustic and so when I when I did that I didn't know how he would respond to it and he loved the idea and so we, we set out to make a record, him, myself, Jed Hughes, and a guy named Giles Reeves, who played all the percussion and keyboards. And so we'd, you know, start trekking down the acoustic record road, and Jay says to me, you know, how do we make this different from every other acoustic singer-songwriter record? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but what could we do that would be different? And I said, well, I love strings. And Jay said, oof, you know, you have to have so many of them to sound good. And so I kind of thought uh, it probably was the end of it for Jay. And then he texted me that night or called me and said, you know, I was thinking about what you said about strings. How would you feel about trying out a couple songs with the Memphis Strings and Horns players? And I was all about it. You know, he said, hmm. think Bobby Gentry, think I am Shelby Lynn, you know, think that sort of a string um, vibe. And I think he was a little scared that I wouldn't like what they did, and but I loved it. And so we ended up getting the budget to do the whole album with them. But wow. everything, and there are some electric guitars you'll hear in there, but pr- pretty much everything was acoustic, and it was just the four of us. There were no overdubs um, from anybody outside of the, the four of us. And, you know, there really weren't even a lot of overdubs. Most of it was pretty live. Hmm. Wow. You know, uh, that whole thing of kind of starting acoustic and then, and then opening up your mind to add some things, it's it's almost like you get into to scary territory. You're like, okay, well, how much can we add, and and when should we stop, and 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 when do we sort of keep the soul of this? It almost can feel like a, a tightrope walk. I'm sure when you're trying to to maintain a feel that you envisioned originally, but now you're opening your mind to these new these new additions. You know, it actually wasn't very tough. At least it wasn't for me. Um, because I loved so much of what I was hearing that was coming from Memphis. And we never met we never met the players. We never met Lester Snell, who arranged all of the parts. He would just send us, he would send us more than what we wanted. So I probably feel the way I do because of Jason Hall, Jay's engineer, who 
who went in there and cleaned things up. And, um, you know, I think he and Jay did a lot of sorting through, getting rid of things we didn't, that I wouldn't want before I heard anything. Um, and there were some things, you know, we had a lot more flute on it than ended up on it. And, uh, we, we trimmed some of that back, but it all just felt real organic and like it was supposed to be there. Wow. Well, the first single from the album was a breakup song called Who You Thought I Was with a lyric that says, now I want to be honest, now I want to be better, now I want to be the me I should have been when we were together. There's a lot of things I used to want to do till I met you. Now I want to be honest, now I want to be better, now I want to be the me I should You know, your writing has always felt very authentic, but this album feels a bit more vulnerable and personal to me. Do you feel like you were writing from a different place this time around? In some ways, yes. Um, and then in other ways, no. I, I, I feel like I'm always writing those kinds of songs. They just haven't been the ones that have bubbled up. Mm. You know, and I had gone through a breakup of a long relationship and I think I was writing about that more than I realized. And so so that part of it is more vulnerable. And deciding to put more first-person songs on the album, I didn't realize just how many, how, mu- how much I enjoy being the storyteller on an album mm-hmm. until this album where there's not a lot of that. It's, it's mostly first-person. Um, but I've always written those kinds of songs. They just... Um, didn't find their home, at least with me, artistically, until this album. Was the fact that those songs, you know, weren't the type of songs that you were best known for, even if you had been writing them, um, to then kind of make the decision of, well, now this is what I'm going to kind of put out there for, for the world uh, to, to consume. Um, was that process at all frightening for you did it did it feel like a a shift or was it just a natural evolution of of who you've always been as a writer it was a shift yes to 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 release those songs was a shift and to and to release them and say you know I went through a breakup and this is a breakup record that was scary um I didn't know how people would 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 feel like that would I don't know if, if the people who are fans of my music would like that, hmm. and I was pleasantly surprised. You know, I always think that I'm different and smarter than everyone else. I guess I shouldn't say smarter, but different. <laughs> right. And I always think that people like I love a song like I'll be the sad song, and I always just assume that no one else will. You know, hmm. I just think, oh, yeah. that's the kind of song I love, and so. When the album came out, before it came out, and people that had pre pre ordered it could get the Grat tracks, that was one of the Grat tracks. And and so many people that have been with me from the first thing I released loved that song in particular. And it reminded me of okay, if I like it, maybe a few other people might like it too. Right, right, right. Um, 
Well, if, if there's anyone listening to this show who's been living under uh, a rock and, and doesn't realize it, you spent uh, years as a Nashville songwriter before you made your debut album. Um, and your first really big hit was uh, Better Dig 2, a number one single for the band Perry. Um, and that's a, a great song, and it's also a great record um, in the way it combines Appalachian fiddles and, and banjo with this very contemporary beat and crunchy guitars. Put me in the ground. I put me six foot down. And let the stone say, Here lies a girl who's only crutch. Loving one man just a little too much. If you go before I do, I'm gonna tell the grave digger that he better dig too. And one of the things we didn't really talk about last time that, that I would love to ask you is, you know, as you're writing songs, and I guess I'm speaking more about not necessarily something that's going to be for one of your own records, um, but as you're just going through the, the everyday process of, of being a songwriter, do you tend to imagine arrangements and sonic textures that you, you know, then go and create as a roadmap for, for your demos? Or do you more tend to just get in a room with an acoustic guitar, write the song, and then trust that, you know, whatever artist or producer gets their hands on it will just do what feels right to them? You know, both. I tend to be more of the sit in a room with an acoustic guitar and and create and think that way. Um, unless I'm writing with someone who uses tracks and I might have an idea of, oh, this would sound really great with a gut string guitar. If I don't have a gut string, do you have a, a gut string sound somewhere in, in that toolbox, that kind of thing. But with Better Dig 2 in particular, that was a song, I think so much of where it ended up was because one of the co-writers, Trevor Rosen, was playing the ganjo. That's what started that song was that opening lick. Hmm. Uh, and that demo was one, because of that, the record sounds a lot like the demo. I mean, the demo doesn't sound like Dan Huff produced it because he did such a fantastic job on that record. I'm with you. It, it's it's amazing. Um, but it's not far from the demo. So yeah. just having that ganjo to build around. And on the demo, it was a real real banjo, if I remember right. It was Ilya Tashinsky that was playing it, if I remember correctly. Um, but it, I think that one, I mean, that was that was, that's a situation where... That ganjo started it all. Hmm. I have never heard the term ganjo. Is that it? Like a guitar banjo hybrid? Yes. Ah. It's you know, it's a guitar it's a guitar that sounds like a banjo. For right. those of us guitar players who don't play banjo, it's like a cheater's instrument. Um, <laughs> right. it's really heavy. I'm always gonna get one. I'm always like, Oh, I need to get a ganjo and then I'll go in and get something else. But it's a cool it's it's an inspiring um way to write and you know, I've had guys on the road because of a song of mine, um, Love Can Go to Hell, that has banjo on it. You know, I've had guys on the road that will play ganjo instead of banjo on that. Yeah. I kind of prefer to call it a bantar. Um, <laughs> a bantar. It makes me well, think of like, like a centaur. And <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Which is your spirit animal. Can we maybe change that? <laughs> bantar. Yeah. I like that. From now on. You heard it here. They also <laughs> have like a mando guitar. A man. I have a seen those. A mantar. A mantar. <laughs> it sounds like a like a, a piece of men's clothing of some sort. I don't know. Yeah, it's awfully close <laughs> to mansplaining as well. But um, <laughs> well, if Better Dig Two was your first hit, 
maybe your first classic was Mama's Broken Heart, um, which you saw become a major hit for Miranda Lambert. It got CMA, ACM, and Grammy nominations for Country Song of the Year. Word got around to the butterflies and the Baptist. My mama's phone started ringing off the hook. I can hear her now saying she ain't gonna have it. Don't matter how you feel, it only matters how you look. Go and fix your makeup, girl. It's just a breakup running. That song seems to be tragic, defiant, and, and even funny all at the same time. But it also has a certain kind of social commentary in terms of the expectations that have been handed down to women by previous generations. Do you kind of think of your songs as 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 just being character studies, or do you kind of view songwriting as an opportunity to both entertain and also kind of send a message as you're going along? You know, both. I think that... Um mostly their character studies i love I, I love characters it's you know i love people so in the bigger the character the the more intriguing they are to me and mama's broken heart is one of those um that story that song came i wrote that with um casey musgraves and shane McAnally, and that was a very true song from shane's point of view he it was about his mom and his sister and just the, the push-pull of their relationship. At the time, his sister was going through a breakup and wasn't handling it the way her mom thought she should. And so that's where that's where that started. Hmm. Um, well, as you say, Mama's Broken Heart was written by you and, and Shane and Casey, um, who all went on to win the CMA Song of the Year Award the following year uh, for Casey's recording of Follow Your Arrow. And that song, too, was about societal expectations in a way and of course is another classic of your catalog um and i guess what i find interesting um because i knew you before you uh started to have all this success is i always thought and maybe i knew you before you'd even had your first cut but i always thought that you were like a really special songwriter a great songwriter um and you know you spent the better part of a decade in Nashville uh, before real success came. And now it's been the better part of a decade since that success, you know, kicked in for you. But the quality of your songwriting, you know, started very strong. Somehow you've continued to hit that high bar you set for yourself over and over and, and, and even exceeding it. Um, But I think sometimes people don't realize like how much goes into becoming a great, songwriter. I mean, there, there is no doubt that, that there is just raw spark of talent. Um, but this show is called Songcraft, and, and there is a, a craft to, to nurturing and developing that talent. And I guess all of that is a really long way of saying, you know, that the old adage that, that practice makes perfect. Um, give us a little insight into like how many songs you've written, including the ones you've discarded, uh, in comparison to the number that we've actually heard? Well, that's a great question, Scott, and I appreciate the kind things you said about me. Um, I've definitely, you know, I don't think I've written thousands of songs, but I've written way over a thousand. 
Um, and I think I write probably fewer songs than a lot of people. I know a lot of writers that have to write a song every day and that that's the way they write five good ones a year. That really hurts me if I try, I've tried that. Um, hmm. But I, I mean, that's not that I don't write every day, but to, to be in that pattern of, oh, I have to finish a song every day or I have to write two songs a day doesn't, doesn't tend to, the results don't get better. They kind of get worse. Yeah. Um, you know, I, for a long time I wrote every day. Like I said, I didn't necessarily finish something every day, but I wrote every day. Um, now, you know, as I get, the further I get into it, as opposed to necessarily sitting down and writing every day, I try to do something creative every day that will, hmm. um, that will fill my tank a little so that, so that when I get into the room with the right person, I have something to say. Um, that's, you know, that's probably my biggest challenge right now. And this year has been a little easier because of COVID. Um, it's reminded me, oh, you know, I should really read and listen to other music as opposed and, and pick up the guitar more than just when I get in the room to write with somebody. I, I got a, um, octave mandolin to make myself learn to play something else and challenge myself that way um i think you know a lot of it's always more missed than it is hit even people that are you know that have multiple songs on the charts at once if you if you were to talk to them they would tell you about all the ones that aren't on the chart uh so i think you just have to get used to that it's going to be more failure than success and you know that you're always working writing songs to write those for me to write those couple of songs a year that really stand out yeah yeah there was part of me at 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 times um you know in the stuff that i write myself that that thought when i was younger oh am i gonna run out of songs one day that one day it's just gonna like (laughs) you know you keep going to that well and then you go back and like oh it's just it's just dirt now there's no water in there but now i've begun to look at it as a as a pump that just needs to stay primed and that actually the more you do it and the more you dig into that like you're saying just sort of keeping that creative muscle going that it actually kind of even like strengthens the yield boy you're right if it is a pump that needs to be primed i mean i can't go weeks without writing a song and step into a room and and write something great you know i've, I've got to when i say you know i like i try to do something creative every day like i might have three co-writing appointments a day well I don't like just sit on the couch and do nothing the other two days I'm usually writing by myself um maybe I'm at the library when there's no COVID just idea researching um treating it like a job so I like that I'm gonna use that priming the pump thing that's that's good there we go yeah I always think of it too as like going to practice like most days you're just going to practice and then the day that, that somebody, be it yourself or one of your co-writers, has that amazing idea, if you haven't been coming to practice, you're not going to hit a grand slam. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing worse than a wasted idea. Right. Hmm. Good quote. An idea is a terrible thing to waste, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, well, Brandy, the last time we interviewed you, you were about to head off to the Grammy Awards, where you were nominated for Best Country Album for your debut record, 12 Stories, and also nominated in the category of Best New Artist. That's not Best New Country Artist, that's Best New Artist, regardless of genre. Um, and I was there in the audience uh, that night at the Staples Center when you and Dwight Yoakam performed 
an acoustic duet of Hold My Hand, which was then, in turn, nominated for Best Country Song at the Grammys the following year. She walked up and said hello It's been a while Don't think I didn't notice The nervous in your smile Wasn't that long ago You were a whole lot more than friends So this would be a real good time To hold my hand Don't let this moment linger Now would be the time Reach out with your fingers Get them tangled up with mine Let her know Seeing you up there with Dwight Yoakam or thinking about Reba McIntyre recording her song uh, She Got Drunk Last Night on her Love Somebody album, which, you know, was certainly not the only time Reba McIntyre has, has cut one of your songs. Um, or even, you know, George Strait recording Take Me to Texas on his Cold Beer Conversation album. These, you think about Dwight, Reba, George Strait, these artists are now legends, but they were already hugely important stars in the country music universe when you were still just a kid listening to country radio. Um, what does it mean to you to get the acknowledgement and approval of people that you once admired from a distance when you were growing up? It's huge. You know, it, it's kind of a, it's a pinch myself sort of thing because I, I have for the most, I've gotten to work with more of my heroes than most people do. I mean, Dwight's a big one. Reba's huge, you know, they were, I never remember a time when Reba wasn't on the radio and Dwight, he's always, he's always been a legend to me. Even, you know, when, when he was, when he was new, you know, he just has that feel of a legendary artist. And then, you know, one of the first, um, artists that really reached out their hand to me and, and did some things to help move my career along was Marty Stewart and Connie Smith, who are legends. And, all, having having that is really big for yeah. me as an artist and a songwriter. I guess it there you know there are a lot of the reasons why I write the songs I write and wanted to do country music. You know, um, Reba has cut several of my songs, like you said, and and I learned to write songs listening to the songs that she recorded by people like Harlan Howard and hmm. other greats. So it's it feels like a very full circle moment if that makes any sense you know I think about hearing Reba singing have I got a deal for you it's one of the first songs I remember hearing on the radio and then having her record songs of mine or it's just it's mind-blowing yeah yeah you know I think I think you and I are about the same age and when I was a kid like the Oak Ridge boys you know were huge um and I noticed that they uh, covered your song Pray to Jesus on their 17th Avenue Revival album, which is a gospel album. I, I never really heard that necessarily as a gospel song before. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of funny. Me too. And I love that they did it. And, and much, I think you and I are the same age and they, they've always been 
huge to me as well. And the way that they talk about that song is probably more than any other artist who's ever cut a song of mine has. You know, they make... The, every time somebody tweets at them, they always tag me in the tweet as, you know, we, we this is why one of our favorite songwriters, Brandy Clark, and uh, I did a show with them, and uh, they were just, they're just fantastic guys. So all of it, you know, it's great when you meet your heroes and they're nice people. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> <laughs> we all know they're not always. And so I'm lucky that I've met some of mine that are really great people. That's great. I've always wondered why, you know, growing up in Tennessee, when I referred to Oak Ridge, I would put the emphasis on the word ridge. But when you talk about mm-hmm. the Oak Ridge boys, it's all on oak. <laughs> Can you speak to that? It's because it's such a nice <laughs> vowel. You know, oak. It sounds so good. Yeah, but no one says the Oak Ridge boys. I mean, it just doesn't sound right. No. So, that, but yeah, I, I just, I wanted to bring that up. I've talked about the um, the Bantar and now uh, the pronunciation of Oak Ridge. So, Maybe I should just go I'll never back hear their, home. I'll never, I'll never hear their name is the same again. Oak Ridge Boys. Oak Ridge Boys. We could do that too. <laughs> um, well, even as you pursued your artist career, you continued to find success with other artists' recording of your songs, including Jennifer Nettles' top 25 single, Unlove You, which the two of you wrote together. I can't unlove you And a heart can't unbreak feel how it felt to feel so much myself my whole body ached and I can't unknow this Lord I wish I knew how but I can't unlove you so come love me for now In fact, I think you wrote more than a half dozen songs that ended up on her second album. Is there anything different to the process for you about writing a song that you know will be for another artist's project compared to writing something that might be for one of your own records? Yeah, the, the process is pretty different for me. When, when I'm writing with an artist, like Jennifer's a great example, um, I, I try to be in service to that artist and what they want to say. Uh, sometimes, I mean, I try not to do it at the expense of the song, but sometimes it could be because maybe I'll, maybe I'll let something in there and not that I'm the song police, but that if, if I were just writing a song, be it for me or just to write a song, I maybe would be like, Oh, I don't know if, if I would say that, Mm. but if they want to sing it and they want to say it, then I'm going to help them say it the best way they can. Uh, and I've and I, that since I started my own artist career, that's where the majority of my cuts have come from is writing with other artists, and it's typically people I'm on the road with. Like Jennifer and I, the reason why I wrote over half of that record with her was we were on tour together, and then more more recently I did a last year I did some shows in Australia and New Zealand and Japan and. I, and while I was over there, both Lindsay L and Ashley McBride approached me about, hey, we should write. When I got back, we wrote, and both of them recorded songs that we wrote for their records. So I need to get back out on the road um, <laughs> so I can get some more cuts. Because that's to, as my career has gone on, that's that's how it's sort of progressing on the songwriter end. You know, that's a really interesting point because um, I think for a lot of people who are aspiring writers, they kind of have this 
assumption, which is like, well, if I can just meet the right you know, person in Nashville, or if I can just get the right person to hear my song, then everything's going to fall into place. Um, and you know, it's, it's not necessarily just about the, the songs that you, you have. It's also about the people that you kind of grow and and develop with. And I think, you know, Shane McAnally is somebody that Mm -hmm. you've had a very fruitful relationship with, um, that is also kind of comes out of the context of your friendship and the huge amount of songs you guys have probably written together that that we're not aware of or as you say being on tour with somebody just provides that opportunity and I think what some people don't realize is you can't really operate in a vacuum as a songwriter it's not just a creative business it's also a relationship business and the people that you choose to spend time with and mutually invest in one another um, is almost as important as the talent that you bring to the table um, to begin with sometimes i think it's more important i mean i uh, the people that you see that have the most success are not always the most talented I think they're the most talented oftentimes at getting themselves in the right situations. You know, Shane's a great example. Uh, you know, he and I have a really deep friendship and he, um, I won't say the artist cause you never know what's going to happen, but you know, he started working with a new artist as a producer and said, Hey, you know, Brand, I really think this would be a great project for you to be a part of. And so we're going to write with this artist together. And so that's an opportunity that I wouldn't get if I didn't have, a relationship with Shane. Now, if I wasn't also a good songwriter, it wouldn't happen because he's not going to waste his shots with that artist. But you're right. I mean, there is, there is a certain, it is a relationship business. Um, If you don't have the goods, it's hard to, for that to work out for you. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people that maybe they're not as strong of a writer make it work because they're really strong with their networking and people like them. You know, some of it is just, can you sit in a room all day with somebody? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it also speaks though to, uh, if you're only focused on yourself, you know, it's probably not going to happen for you. Like you also have to invest your life in the lives of other people in terms of building those relationships and be supportive of, of other writers that are coming up at the same time as you. And, and that communal aspect um, is something that I think, you know, people don't realize they think, oh, if I could just get in with so-and-so that's like this huge hit writer, then everything's going to work out for me where they probably ought to be saying who around me is on the way up. That is one of my peers that I admire and is great that we can forge like a real partnership and like do this thing, you know, like build our, build the new generation of, of talented songwriters that's coming up. Um, there's not a question there. That was just a thought off the top of my head. <laughs> no, it's so true. You, you know, you brought up Shane. I'll, when I first met Shane, he had just moved. He had moved to L.A. for, I want to say, 10 years. And then he moved back to Nashville, and he and I met, and we, we struck it up really quickly, both writing and friendship-wise. And he was talking about being a little bit jealous of this group of songwriters he saw that were doing something together. That's never really been my issue. Like... I don't, I don't have serious FOMO most of the time. I mean, sometimes I do, but it's not really my, it's not really my biggest demon, you know? And so I said to Shane, I said, well, Shane, create your own group. I said, I mean, there's all these great people that you're riding with. Like Trevor Rosen was one of them and Josh Osborne, like make that a group. And so the next day he calls me and says, let's do a writing retreat. 
and it was all those people and that's actually where better dig two got finished was on that retreat but i i think what you're i I not not only think it i know what you're saying is true you have to you know look around you there's so much talent and and instead of chasing it look around you and and invest in that and invest in people you like Hmm. you know not the ones you have to chase down because right I think it comes from, I think success as far as in, in creativity comes from being able to, to say something really stupid. Mm. And <laughs> I could say something really stupid to Shane. He's a great example. And he would never laugh at it. He would, he would get it. It's, he yeah. would say, oh, I know that's not it, but I know what you're going for. Yeah, it, or it, yeah. might, it might lead him to something else. And if you're in rooms with people that you're always trying to impress, that doesn't happen. Mm. <laughs> yeah. We went and interviewed Shane, uh, oh gosh, maybe last year, I guess. Um, and I remember him saying that he feels like his greatest strength as a writer, that the, the, the best thing that he brings into the room is he's a cheerleader and encourager. He is that I wish I, you know, I, I, I so wish I had that same gift and it's not cause I don't want to have it. He knows not only is he a cheerleader and an encourager, but he knows the right things to cheerlead and encourage. Mm. You know, it's not it's not everything. It's you know, he he knows how to to pull the best out of what somebody can bring and make it better. And he's I've never known anybody better at that than him, honestly. Mm. Yeah. Um well, speaking of uh, of Shane and, and Casey Musgraves, uh, you were a writer on four songs from Casey's pageant material album, including the single Biscuits. And uh, I think at the last time we interviewed you, that song was like new. Um, and it's one we didn't really get a chance to uh, to dive in and, and talk about. Um, what can you tell us about that song? You know, it started, I remember it started in the room when we were finishing up Follow Your Arrow, actually. Um and I want to say that I said that, like, mind your own biscuits, like, like being funny. And, and one of them, I think it was Shane. In fact, I think it's even on, hey, on, it was even recorded, said in life will be gravy. And so it was one of those songs where we just stuffed it away. Oh, we'll write that another time. And then in between same trailer, different park and pageant material, we did. If you ain't got nothing nice to say, don't say nothing at all. Just hold your own Follow-up to your debut album, 12 Stories, uh, which you mentioned earlier was Big Day in a Small Town. That was your major label debut with Warner Brothers. Um, Earned a Grammy nomination for Best Country Album, and the single, Love Can Go to Hell, earned a a Grammy nomination for Best Country Song, um, despite the fact that it didn't actually chart on the country charts. Love can go to your head Like a shot of something strong Love can go to your bed and stay there all night long. Love can go on and on like a Sunday morning sparrow. Love can go to your heart like a sweet talking arrow. Love can go to hell in a broken heartbeat minute. That's where. 
you know, and to my ear, you're making some of the best and obviously most critically acclaimed country music today. You've got this dedicated following, but you don't get the same kind of radio exposure as other artists. And, you know, personally speaking, other artists that I think are (laughs) inferior. Um, Do you find that kind of radio play situation frustrating or are you able to just kind of say like, Hey, I make my music and let the chips fall. It was really frustrating for me. I I mean, I had to have, um, I really had to sit with myself a lot between big day and this record because I really did get my heart broken in that. I, I, I'm signed to Warner LA and I'm still signed to that division of Warner, but on my on that big day record they partnered it with Nashville so that they could so that I could work a radio single and you know I went after it as hard as anything I've ever gone after and wanted it as much and in my first single girl next door was top 40 barely you know but it was top 40 and and then they they put out love can go to hell and it you know they they threw it out there for a couple six weeks I think and then pulled it and that was one of the more defeated times for me in the music business. Um, and it really took, you know, my manager saying to me, you know, look, you can keep pounding on this door, but it's not opening. And so why not walk through some of these doors that are opening? And if it made me, once I, you know, sat with that and digested it and really thought about it, because I, I do view myself as a country artist. It, it, it really, but but once I let go of the the country radio component of it, it freed me up in a different way. Um, mm. With this record, I didn't, and and nobody's ever said to me, "You need to make a record for radio." I will say that I've never had a label person say that. I've never had a manager say that. Um, I've I've felt it in my own heart, and this time I didn't. And you know, they said. When I turned it in, they said, "We love this. We're gonna we're gonna get it played at Americana and AAA, and that's what they've done so far." Um, I wish I was on the road to feel what that would feel like, because hmm. um, I don't know what you know. I don't know what those what that translates to. Like who you thought I was was a top ten on Americana chart, and the right. album has done well over there. Um, but no, you know, I would be lying if I said that that there wasn't a part of me that didn't want that big radio exposure because it just gives you access to more ears for your music. Mm, But I'm also not going to stop making music because country radio doesn't get on board with it. And, And I will say I did have and do have supporters at country radio, just not enough to really make that difference. Um, cause there's a big difference between a top 40 and a top 20. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I had to just you know, get sad for a bit, and thank God I got those Grammy nominations. That did soften that blow a little bit, you know. Well, at least the Grammys, you know, is to see and hear me kind of thing. Um, All right. But no, I mean, I'd be lying if I said that wasn't disappointing. And and I know what a number one record at Country Radio does. I've had a couple as a writer, so I've I've been to shows and seen the difference between when you know, Miranda Lambert plays Mama's Broken Heart versus an album cut. Hmm. Yeah. Well, earlier this year, Ashley McBride released a new album, which features two of your songs, Voodoo Doll and Sparrow. Now, both of those songs have six writers each, and it seems that where it used to be common to have two and maybe three writers on a song, 
Now things have changed in country music where it's not unusual to see four or five, six or more names on a song. Looking back at your Big Day in a Small Town album, I, I think Drinking, Smoking, Cheating is the only song you wrote solo. And I don't think there are mm -hmm. any solo compositions on the most recent album. Talk a little bit about why you've primarily chosen to be a collaborative writer and, and give us some insight in, into whether there's even that much opportunity for you these days. I mean, uh, during COVID, we've all got opportunities to, to, to do more things than we maybe even wanted to. We're going to have a, a rock painting day at my house. But, um, <laughs> you know, in, in terms of, you know, uh, just your approach to writing solo, is it the kind of thing where you even want to finish songs on your own? Or do you look forward to that moment when you can say, hey, I, I can't wait to get in the room with this idea and someone else and see what they bring to it? Well, you know, because of COVID, I have written more by myself, and it's been good to get back to that for me and to finish things by myself and turn them in and have people respond really well to them. Yeah. That's, good. That's good for my songwriting ego. Um, you know, you mentioned the Ashley songs that have six, six writers on them. That was a unique situation. We were all on a writing retreat, and we just decided at the top of it that everybody was going to write on every song. Mm. That's not that's not typical for me, and, and it worked out really well on that retreat. And it was people that that could figure out how to um, navigate that terrain of where there are six voices on a song. You know who you know people that would that w were secure and smart enough to know when to hang back and when to have input. I'm usually I'm usually not more than a, a three way sort of writer, mm. uh, and I do think I mean it you know. I, when I first came to town, there weren't very many three-way co-writes. It was it was two-way co-writes. I don't know what put, has pushed it there. I think it's probably just um, numbers, you know, quality, and certain certain writers that like to write that way, and also the track the track person becoming prevalent in Nashville. Um, makes it so, you know, there's going to be three writers on a lot of songs. And I like both ways. You know, I go through seasons, and um, oh, through this COVID, I've really enjoyed getting back to writing some by myself and have found confidence in that that I kind of lost from co-writing so much. Because you, you, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but, you know, writing by yourself usually takes longer. Mm. And so when you sit in a room with somebody else and, you don't get stuck as as much. You're like, oh, man, maybe I just shouldn't write by myself. But the truth is I think both things are really important. Um, a publisher said to me early on, always write by yourself because it's like bouncing a ball against a wall, and you want to know how you throw that ball against the wall so that when you get in the room with somebody else and they throw it back to you, that's the unknown is how hard they're going to throw it back, but you need mm. to know how hard you're throwing it. And... Mm. I think that is pretty invaluable, and a lot of songs that end up doing anything for me, whether it's on my own or something someone else cuts, is something I started by myself. Mm. E even if I don't, like for example, the song Crazy Women, which was on my first album, Leanne Rhymes also recorded that song. Um, I had written that song completely by myself, but I knew it was wrong. And so, but I loved the idea. So when I took that song into co-writers, I already knew which roads not to go down. Hmm. And so it made writing that song with other people easier. And it also made the finished product be something I really wanted because I, that was an idea that I just, like I said, I just loved the idea. I just couldn't figure it out. Hmm. And, 
And so I like I knew I hadn't figured it out. I guess I should say, had I not spent the time writing that song by myself, <clears throat> I'm sure we would have not nailed it because I would have pushed to go the the way that I had gone before I sat down with Jesse, Joe, and Shane. Well, last year, Reba McIntyre released your song, Tammy Wynette, Kind of Pain, which is just a, a killer title. Um, do you tend to, to write from titles, or do you typically get a sketch of an idea and kind of work your way out to a title line? Typically titles, and I wrote that with uh, Shelley Skidmore and Mark Narmore, and Mark is like the king of titles and crazy titles, and he came in with that title. Um, anytime I write with Mark, I'm always excited because I know there's going to be a great title. Uh, or they're going to be 30 great titles and I'm just going to, he'll just hand me a notebook um, full of titles and, and I'll, I'll choose one. Um, I like to start with a title. Now when I write by myself, I don't always because, and I feel like by yourself, that's one of the, the gifts you have is you don't necessarily have to, cause you've only got one brain that you're trying to aim towards a certain point. And I think when you're by yourself, you don't have to worry as much about staying on track until you've you've you find where the track is but when i co-write i try to have something um something to move towards yeah yeah i sort of think of it like you know if if i was gonna hang out by myself if i had just a a day then i might wander i might get in the car and just go Mm -hmm. for a drive and but if i come by and i pick scott up he's gonna be like where are we going you exactly. know what I mean? Like if, when I'm with somebody else, it's like, well, let's have a destination in mind, you know, because I'm, 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 you know, it's your time that, that I'm using today as well. But sometimes that wandering will just lead you to the title. You don't even know what the song's about, but you just, I'm mm-hmm. just going to walk down this path. Yeah. And when you're by yourself, you can do that and not get bored. Yeah. When you're in the room with someone else and you're wandering aimlessly, <laughs> it gets hard. Yeah. Right. Why are we doing this? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, coming back to your most recent project, Randy Newman sings a guest duet with you on Bigger Boat. I, I imagine that must have been a, a pretty awesome experience. Tell us a little bit about that. It was. So I wrote that song with Adam Wright and, and didn't record it as a duet. But my manager said, because I've wanted to do a duet on one of my albums and just it just the song hasn't presented itself. And I'm always thinking, oh, you know, it's going to be a love song. You know, I've had other songs that I thought that would work really well as a duet. And then I don't end up recording it or something happens. But my manager said, you know what would be a great duet is Bigger Boat. And I said, oh, you're right. And she started talking about some different legendary artists to get on it. And I said, what about Randy Newman? Because to me, it just sounded like him. And she said, well, that's a great idea, but how are we going to get to him? And... It was not why I had said him, but but as soon as I said his name, I thought of Lenny Warnaker, who I work with at Warner, who has worked with Randy his whole career, and they've known each other since they were little boys. And so Lenny got him to do it. You know, um, he had to like the song first, which was so that felt like a, a feat in itself that he liked it enough to come in and do it. And then he um, he had to finish Toy Story four, and which again that was like, oh, man, where am I? What what world am I living in here? And uh, <laughs> He was willing to do it. I flew to L.A. and did it at his producer's studio. And he was just a gem, you know, super nice, really humble. Like I said, we didn't cut it as a, as a duet, so he had to figure out how to make it work in my key for himself. And um, he just killed it.
ask you about the first track on the album, um, I'll Be the Sad Song, which you, you referenced earlier. Um, the first lines of that are, if your life is a record, people and places are the songs. They'll be slow and they'll be past ones, looking forward, looking back ones on that tiny two-lane town that you call home. Um, <laughs> I love that because you, you like knowing the title and those opening lines, you're like, okay, I see where this is. I, I, I see where this is going to land. And it's such a cool idea. Um, but there's a, a melancholy, you know, to that song. There's a certain, a certain sadness, uh, to it. Um, and you mentioned that, that this, um, in some ways is your, your breakup album, um, that, that these were some more, you know, personal songs, um, is there a degree, uh, for you, um, where songwriting is therapeutic, where songwriting is really not just crafting something that you're good at crafting, but actually, uh, kind of working out your, your thoughts and, and feelings about the hard stuff that's going on in your life? Completely. And you know, it's, it's funny you would mention that song because that song was written, right after you were talking about country radio not not necessarily embracing the songs on big day in a small town the way i would like that song was as much about that as it was about any relationship you know sometimes you can just take that sadness of something and channel it in to to a song and a lot of that i mean this this song this record to me when you, when I, it's a breakup of a lot of things, you know, my idea of where my music was going to sit, you know, it's a, it's a breakup with that. I, I would have probably never before now been like, Oh yeah, put, put a flute on something, even though I thought it was, um, would, would sound great. I'm, I'm sure there would be some part of my head that would say, um, Oh, you know, that probably wouldn't get played on the radio. And so I didn't have I didn't have that going on, and I think a lot of the I'll be the sad song in particular was written right after um, I found out that uh, oh love can go to hell had been pulled as a single, so I had a lot of sadness. I wrote that with Chase McGill and Jesse Joe Dillon. We we were in, on a writing retreat in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I probably was only in the mood to write sad songs right then. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So in. Anything I'm going through, I'm going to put into my songs, and I do think it is it is therapeutic. Sometimes I have to step away from it because if I'm too sad, you know, it's like, oh, I need to, like, go bowling or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, the most recent record is called Your Life is a Record. Um, really cool songs, great sonic textures, uh, absolutely Love the album, and as you know, we're big fans of your songwriting career, both uh, when you're in the spotlight and when you're behind the scenes. You have you bring so much integrity um, to the craft of, of writing, um, which is why we've decided to make history with the uh, return engagement, our, our, uh, our second uh, uh, time to have you on the show, and I don't know if there's anyone else that... Uh, that could rise to that standard for us. So thank you so much for, um, Mm -hmm. for taking the time, Brandy and, uh, and, and sharing some updates, uh, with us today and some thoughts on, on your songwriting process and your career. Uh, it's been great. 
thank you both so much. I've enjoyed it. Um, I loved it more the second time around. I can't believe it's been this long. When you said it, it was right after 12 Stories had been, I was getting ready to do Grammy stuff. Man, that was a long time ago. So It was. Um, it was, I think, so, November, December of 2014 that we that we wow. talked to you. So good to uh to hear your voice and uh look forward to uh hoping our our paths cross again before another five to six years uh goes by yes let's hope so thanks for listening we'd love to stay connected with you so please take a moment to subscribe to songcraft via apple podcasts itunes spotify stitcher or your podcast app of choice if you like the show we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review Word of mouth is important, and letting our potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And if you'd like, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. Your life is a record People and places are songs They'll be slow and they'll be fast ones Looking forward, looking back ones On that tiny two-lane town that you call home They'll all make sense there together If your life Is a record